Acts 4.32 And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. This passage kind of encompasses a couple of the three ideas I'd like to speak to you on tonight. But we're continuing the theme of attitudes and acts. And hopefully tonight some good attitudes and acts. God bless you. Please be seated. Amen. The purpose of the book of Acts, I believe, is to show the triumph of the gospel over every barrier. And the areas that I would like to focus on tonight, I believe, contributed to the success of the early church in spreading the gospel. I'd like to talk to you about apostolic unity, hospitality, and generosity. On June 2nd, I spoke on the this Attitudes and Acts, and gave you basic information about the book. I won't review in depth about that, but external and internal obstacles that were overcome by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of the book, as I've already stated, to show the triumph of the gospel over every barrier. The geographical expansion of the church and all the implications of crossing boundaries and breaking into new people groups that took place in the book of Acts. Last week on Wednesday night, I continued that idea in dealing with the mentality of the disciples in the church. And I went through numerous passages in the book of Acts to try to demonstrate the struggles they had with accepting Gentile believers. Primarily, it was an issue of Jewish Christians accepting, I started to say welcoming, but it wasn't really a welcome, accepting Gentile believers in the church. And my point was to make sure that we don't have those same attitudes about welcoming people into the church that are vastly different from us and that we don't require too much of them too soon, but allow the Holy Ghost to work in their lives as they grow in grace. Many of those new believers were pagan in their past. They had absolutely no biblical frame of reference. They had no word of God. They did not have centuries of religion, of Judaism to lean on. They came into the church only knowing that God had performed a miracle in their life, healing them, delivering them, having the devils cast out of them. They knew that there's something good, this good news had happened to them and a new life had started. And then they could be grounded in the apostles' doctrine. Now they didn't have a New Testament, so their teaching was from the Old Testament. And it's amazing how many New Testament verses refer back to Old Testament scriptures that we read in the New Testament of our Bible. Now the, the Bible said that scriptures that were written in the Old Testament 
were written for our learning. They were written so we would not repeat the same mistakes that the Old Testament saints made in their living for God. Corinthians gives a list of them. As I peruse the book of Acts to find highlights of good attitudes, I found a lot, too many to speak about in one night. And as I mentioned last week, perhaps 66 people by name listed in the book of Acts. We will not attempt to teach on all 66 of them, at least tonight. Some of them don't deserve much of a reference, but you know they were the bad guys, but they're still mentioned in the book of Acts. So I want to... Uh, I want to try to apply this purpose of the book of Acts of overcoming obstacles and barriers. And I think Acts has more levels of understanding than I will ever know or have an opportunity to mine out. But I think some of these overcoming attitudes uh, are in the church today but need to be practiced more fully if we're going to be thoroughly apostolic. Amen. We talk about that. We want to be apostolic. We want to be like Jesus. We want to preach and practice the apostolic doctrine. Amen. Principles, power, practice. And if we do, we need to go back and see what took place in the book of Acts that was right and good. We can learn from the bad examples. We can learn from the good examples. So first I want to talk about apostolic unity. I know that you're more familiar with this perhaps, but Acts 1 and 14 I'll only display a few verses from each of these categories of themes. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. This is the very first chapter of Acts. It's before the Holy Ghost is poured out. They already have a unity of purpose. They're in the upper room for the same reason. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. The half-brothers of Jesus and the other apostles that are named in Acts chapter 1. In Acts 2 and 1, the chapter we Pentecostals are fond of and preach from a lot because it gives us the opening of the door of the gospel for the preaching of the message of salvation. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Sometimes people misquote this, often people misquote this, and they say they were all in one mind and one accord. Well, it doesn't say that, but perhaps that's what it means. They were all in the same place and they all had the same purpose. That's how the church began on the day of Pentecost. At the end of that chapter, in Acts 2 and 42, the Bible tells us that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and a fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. In Acts 2, 44 and 45, they had all things common. They sold possessions and goods. They parted them to every man as they had need. So there was this amazing spirit that existed in that church that was rooted in unity of spirit. They had in Acts 2, 46, gladness and singleness of heart. They were not that diverse in Acts chapter 2. They were basically Jewish. Some, we would say, Hebraic Jews, more strict perhaps, raised around Judea. There were Hellenistic Jews, those that had been dispersed and had come back to Jerusalem. But they were a, they were a Jewish church. Not exactly monocultural, but basically all Jewish and had the same idea. And then our text, Acts 4.32 
and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought or any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now at Atlanta West, we teach often on the subject of stewardship. A steward is a manager of another person's goods or property. And we are stewards of the gifts of God that He has given us. We are not the owners. We are the managers. God owns us. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 tells us that. So don't feel like you're your own person and can do your own thing. And I'm not getting ready to drop the pastoral thing on you. I just, you belong to Jesus Christ. Amen? And everything you have belongs to Him. And this early church understood the spirit of unity that everything that God had blessed them with was theirs, but it belonged to God ultimately. So if God needed it, then He got it. And so they had this idea that if there were people that had needs, that they would share what they had with other people. Now we learn right away that Barnabas was one of those people who was very generous, and we'll get to him a little later. Throughout the book of Acts, we see people coming to God, leaving the Lord. Several times in the book of Acts, perhaps three, as I was perusing Acts again, you have Barnabas and Paul in Acts 14 turning away from the, the Jews to the Gentiles. That's how the book of Acts closes. It happens again, maybe in Acts 18. There are people coming to God, people moving away from God. So maintaining this unity was not static. They didn't get it right once, and then it stayed that way. They had to work at it over and over again. That's what Acts 15 was about, the Jerusalem Council that I taught through last week. They're trying to find a way to keep this church together. And I admire the work they went to to make sure that they tried to accommodate diversity of thinking and backgrounds to try to hold this church together because unity was not just something that happened automatically. They had to really work at it. Now, when the Apostle Paul was saved, the disciples didn't believe that he was really saved. I talked about that maybe a couple weeks ago. But eventually they accepted him. Acts 15, they didn't want to accept Gentile believers. But ultimately they did. A very interesting passage in Acts 16, when Paul is in Lystra and Derby, he finds this young man named Timotheus, Timothy. His mother's a Jew, his father's a Greek. And Paul is going to be preaching in areas where there are a lot of Jewish Christians and a lot of Jews who are not Christians. So, Timothy, the son of a Gentile, had never been circumcised, but because of all the Jews that were in that part, then Paul had Timothy circumcised just to try to make sure that they were not offensive as they ministered in these Jewish places. That's an attempt to try to maintain unity. I spoke last week about the, the vow that Paul took in Acts chapter 21. He took another vow earlier in Acts chapter 18. He had a vow, he shaved his head. But this was one that was kind of requested of him. 
And the reason they did this in Acts 21, they said, Paul, you know how many thousands of Jews there are that believe. They're now Christians. But they're still zealous for the law. And they're going to hear that you're come, you've come, and they're going to think that you violated the law, so take this vow. And again, I went into detail about this previously, but they said to him, the multitude must needs come together. And Paul, we know you're going to have to make a sacrifice here in order to take this vow and pay the charges for these men, but we're working really hard to maintain unity in the church. It is not automatic. It is not static. It is dynamic. But it was in, it was part of the dynamic of the early church that I believe led to tremendous revival and growth. Now, unity is not the same as uniformity. We are not cloned Christians. In fact, the Bible spends considerable time teaching on the body of Christ, members in particular, that we're not all the same member of the body. We have different functions and we need each other. We cannot do without one another. And if you think you're self-made, self-contained, that you're autonomous and you don't need anyone else, you are deluded because the the Lord made the body of Christ interdependent and ultimately dependent on Him. So this unity was not an easy thing and it was not forced on everyone to try to make them think exactly the same. Uh, I don't believe in compromising principles, but you have to understand there were some compromises made that were not on principles or convictions to try to get Paul to, to, accept, to have the acceptance of these Jews. And let's not ask too much of the Gentiles. They name four things, you know, that we're going to ask of them in the beginning because we, we don't want them to offend the Jews, but we don't want to put too much on them at one time. This is a lot of work, ladies and gentlemen. So when you find yourself not agreeing and not getting along and having trouble merging yourself in the body of Christ, Welcome to the church. But that church from the beginning in its simplicity and infancy had apostolic unity that they did everything they could to maintain. The phrase with one accord is mentioned seven times in the book of Acts in reference to the church and believers being with one accord. And it was part of the DNA of the early church and it should be part of the church in 2021. I found that unity is not achieved by a one-time pep rally. Uh, I don't know that you can even achieve unity by teaching or preaching on unity. I believe when we love Jesus Christ with all of our hearts, and we believe in the mission He gave us, that we will surrender our will, our preferences, to maintain unity in the body of Christ, not at any cost, but at a lot of personal sacrifice. Amen. One of the first messages I taught here was on the beauty of unity, and I've taught on it several times from Psalm 133. But essentially, just for now, you know, it is like the anointing oil that was made of four different spices that yielded their identities into olive oil so that when you smelled that holy anointing oil, 
You didn't say that's calamus, cinnamon, cassia, or myrrh. You said that's the holy anointing oil because each of those individual spices surrendered its unique identity in something bigger than what they were alone. And if we have unity in the church, which was an attitude that prevailed ultimately in the book of Acts, we're going to have to work at it. It's not going to be automatic. And it doesn't mean that everyone else is going to work on it. That means you. That means I'm going to have to work on it. Now I believe that this unity, this spirit of unity, led to a, an amazing spirit of hospitality. The next two things I'm going to teach on from the book of Acts are, are things that I probably refer to, but as I made a list of attitudes in the book of Acts and people in the book of Acts that exhibited those attributes, I, I thought about how important hospitality was to advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word hospitality is really from the idea of being a host, of hosting strangers or travelers. In the days of the early church, hospitality was essential to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The homes of Jews that had been dispersed throughout the then known world would be a place where Paul and his company could stay as they travel preaching the gospel. It would be difficult to imagine the missionary journeys of Paul succeeding if they had to stay in the Holiday Inn Express. He lodged often with saints. Recently, just in a general conversation, my mom was talking about her parents, my grandparents, uh, in their home in Miami when preachers would come through that they would often stay at their home, eat at their home. They didn't have the hotels that we do now and maybe the money that some people have now. And so staying in a home was a pretty big deal. So I started thinking about hospitality and in the Old Testament, it was very common. Remember Abraham seeing some stranger come and telling Sarah, go in and cook something. Somebody's come. I mean, maybe that was a rare thing, you know. You're out there and nobody's there. Have you ever gone to a small town and gone into a restaurant to eat and everybody was staring at you as if you were from outer space? You were a UFO that had dropped down to their town? They, oh my goodness, there's somebody new in town. Well, in the Old Testament, it was common to have people come by and stay with you. And I was thinking about this, and the Bible really gives us some scripture on the importance of hospitality. Romans 12, 12 and 13. Paul is kind of giving some one-liners. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant or constant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints. Here's that same idea that goes all the way back to Acts chapter 2. Now at the, toward the end of Romans, you know, 12 chapters into 16, he's saying we need to minister, distribute. And then he says, given to hospitality. First Timothy 3 and 2, when Paul is telling Timothy the qualifications of a bishop, which would be equivalent really to a pastor, a shepherd, he says that he must be given to hospitality. In 1 Peter 4, 9, the Apostle Peter said to use hospitality one to another without grudging. The New Living Translation says, 
cheerfully, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. There are other references in the epistles like Hebrews 13.2 that tells us to not be forgetful to entertain strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware like Abraham. 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 10. Talking about widows and taking care of needy widows. And he gives a list of things that she needs to do. She needs to have good works, have brought up children and lodged strangers. Washed the feet of serving people. But one of the attributes of a widow that we would care for in the Bible was that she's taking care of people. Now, I believe that hospitality is rooted in brotherly love. That is written about a lot in the Bible. Romans 12 and 10, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's touching brotherly love. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. And the Apostle Peter called it brotherly kindness that we add to our godliness. So I love God, but I hate people. Now wait a second, hold on. You know that doesn't work. You can't love God that you cannot see if you don't love people that you can see. They are made in the image and likeness of God. And the Apostle Peter said, I want you to have godliness, 2 Peter 1 and 7. And to that godliness, the next thing I want you to add is brotherly kindness. And to that brotherly kindness, he said, I want you to add some charity. So I started imagining what it would have been like in biblical times to have traveled anywhere. And remember, there were the Jews of the dispersion. All the way back to Babylon, they came back. But there were Jews, remember, dwelling in Jerusalem out of every nation under heaven. There were not enough hotels in Jerusalem For all those people to stay. No way. There were multitudes of them. 3,000 added in a single day to the church. And some of those could have been residents of the city of Jerusalem. But if you were from Galilee or Judea, you were a Jew, and you decided to move to Turkey, or you're going to start a business in Athens, Greece, and there were synagogues all over the world, not in every place, but many places, And if there were 10 Jewish families, they could establish a synagogue. It would be like the local church for Jews all over the world. And if you traveled, you would hope, if you were a Jew, if you traveled, you would hope you would happen upon a Jewish brother or sister who would open their home to you. That was a definite need. So I don't know, here's a fun fact for you, okay? There are 169 hotel chains in the United States, supposedly, probably give or take 10 chains, 169. There are 54,200 or more hotel properties with over 5 million guest rooms. Now, these stats, you might find something different. They said there are more than 1.1 billion guest nights annually spent in the United States of America. I haven't added up the math, 365 times 5 million, but that's a lot of people staying in a hotel. But you know, when Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem, small town, she's great with child. There was no room for them in the... They didn't say ends, did it? 
there must have been one little caravanserai, one little motel, whatever. They didn't even leave the light on for them. There was no room in the inn. So, hosting people with a mission was a need in the Bible. And it was also part of the early church. Apostolic hospitality allowed the gospel to be preached in the world. So let me give you some examples of the Apostle Paul or Saul. And I'll go through these quickly and not put many of these on the screen. When when Saul of Tarshish was saved, Acts 9.19 said that he lodged certain days with disciples in Damascus. He's a brand new convert. He's in Damascus. He probably was staying in a corporate hotel when he was on the, you know, the Sanhedrin's ticket, but now he's converted and he doesn't have a credit card. I don't know. So he stays with saints in Damascus. Simon Peter lodged with, you know who? Acts chapter 10. Simon the Tanner, remember? Just preached about Cornelius, but That's where Simon Peter stayed. He he stayed there. And when those Gentiles came, don't you remember this? Just recently, he let them stay there too. And after Peter preached the message of salvation to Cornelius and his household, the Bible said that they asked him to stay there certain days. It was the apostle Peter and six Jewish brothers who had come with them. They stayed there in Cornelius' house and he was a pretty wealthy you know, Roman soldier, a centurion, captain over a hundred men. So he probably had a couple spare bedrooms. I don't know. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul goes to Philadelphia, to Philippi, Macedonia, they go out by the riverside and there is a lady named Lydia, a seller of purple from Thyatira. The Lord touches her heart. She is the first convert in Philippi. Interesting that a man of Macedonia appeared to Paul in a vision and said, come over into Macedonia and help us. And the first convert was a woman. If Paul would have seen a vision, it was a woman. He might have not thought that was the Lord or that was improper. But the first convert is Lydia. And the Bible said that when she was converted, she asked them to come to her house and stay there, and she constrained us. She must have said, you have no idea how much food I've got. How much room I've got. I don't know. But she leaned on Paul and his company, and they stayed at her house. It was, I believe, apostolic hospitality that paved the way and made room for the gospel to be preached. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, In Corinth, the Bible says that he stayed with them. He abode with them. Now, Paul was in Corinth for 18 months. Have you ever had anybody stay with you for 18 months? (laughs) I see a few people nodding their heads. They'll be first in the altar tonight. We'll be finished with hospitality by then. 18 months. I don't know that he stayed with them the entire time. But the Bible said he did. And then Acts 18.7, the Apostle Paul stayed with the man named Justice. And then in Acts 21, Paul stayed seven days before he goes to Jerusalem with some disciples at Tyre. 
In Acts 21, I thought I would show you this first because I, I love this story. I love them all, but Acts 21 and 8. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company. So whenever you see we in the book of Acts, it indicates that Luke, the writer, is with Paul, okay? It's called the we narratives, we in the book of Acts. So Luke is writing, Luke is with Paul, and Paul's company departed. They came to Caesarea, and we entered in the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy, and we tarried there many days. This man has four kids, and Paul and his company stay with them many days. That's when Agabus the prophet comes. The next verse, Acts 21, 16. I also wanted to show you this verse because I like this reference. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea brought with them one Manasin of Cyprus, an old disciple. Here's an old man living for God and Paul lodges with him. Then Paul lodges with disciples in Acts 28 in a place called Puteoli. He had, you know, the barbarians on the island of Melita are not barbarians, but foreigners. They are very kind to Paul, but they're not Christians, so I didn't put them in my notes here. So you've got apostolic unity, this singleness of purpose, and a love for one another that then creates an environment of apostolic hospitality that doesn't necessarily seem spiritual, but it's very spiritual. Now, in 2021, it may not be feasible for you to lodge people passing through, but the principle is true today that we, if we're really going to be apostolic, we want to be apostolic in principles, power, and practice, well, they practiced hospitality. They found ways to include other people in their lives and make room for them. Perhaps it's a meal, a conversation, lodging, or helping someone along the way. But if you think about hospitality, advance the gospel, it was really opening the door, providing a place to stay so the gospel could be preached. And if no one would have opened their home, Paul would have had to go back, I guess, you know, the Lord could make a way and he could have slept on the ground and, you know, whatever. But that was not the way it worked. It worked through people just like you and me who were doing something that didn't seem real spiritual, like casting out a devil. But they let somebody stay in their house. They prepared a meal for them. They made sure that that mission was not thwarted because they ran into a dead-end street when the door was not open to them. Third attitude that I want to speak about tonight is the attitude of generosity. The Acts Church had a giving spirit, and if you already know that, say amen. amen. You can be dismissed. Not really. Don't run for the door. They had, to say that they had a giving spirit is an understatement. In my text tonight, I told you it kind of encompassed the spirit of what I would discuss. But they gave. If they had something that they wasn't a necessity. I don't think Barnabas sold his own residence. I think he was a wealthy man and he had a house that he could sell. I've told this story before, 
years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a couple, they were not apostolic. They were going to sell their house. They donated their house to the Bible college and it was a tremendous blessing to the school. I think it was $107,000, which back then was a tremendous miracle to them. But this is what happened in the early church. The early Jewish believers, they knew that tithing was before the law, under the law, after the law. That was just the beginning point of returning their tithing to the Lord. But the dimension of stewardship of everything I have belongs to God. And if it is needed to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, then so be it, I'm going to put it in the kingdom of God. Since I taught the book of Acts a thousand years ago in Bible college, I always wondered, I always wondered if what God did in the early church would happen in the latter church. See, Jerusalem was ransacked in 70 A.D. And anybody that owned anything basically lost it all. So why not put it in the kingdom where it's going to advance the gospel? I do not believe it was coerced then. If it happens again, I believe it will be spirit-led. It will be individual just like it was then. If Ananias and Sapphira don't want to sell their house, they don't have to. If they don't want to give it all, they don't have to. The Bible is very clear. It was yours. It was in your power. Don't lie about it, right? Do what you feel to do. Just because Barnabas gave his house, don't pretend you gave yours because you're going to wind up in the bad place, right? Acts 2.44 And all the believers were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to every man as every man had need. If one person lacked, the rest of the church took up the slack to take care of them. I'm not going to repeat my text, but the Bible said they brought the prices of those things. I've told this story several years ago. In Jackson, we had a sacrificial offering to purchase a Bible college campus, and people came to the altar. They gave guns, rings, watches, and I became the pawn shop dealer for First Pentecostal Church. And a $200 Seiko watch was worth about nothing at the jewelry store or the pawn shop. And I learned a very valuable lesson that in the Bible, they didn't have the church sell it. They sold it and brought the money. So just remember that. Uh, we're not in the real estate business, right? So anyway, they brought the money and they distributed it. And Barnabas, here's generous Barnabas, he sells this land and gives it to the church. Brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. And then there's, there's this one lady that I want to talk about for a few minutes. When you think of generosity, you may think of, of Barnabas. Like, this guy's really rich, right? And there were a lot of very wealthy Jewish people, and they were Christians. So you can have this and that. You can be wealthy and Christian. You can be poor and a Christian, right? Just because you're rich, now the Bible gives some guidelines about that, right? You don't trust in it. Don't get entangled by it. Don't let the cares of life choke out the life of God. We, we know all that. <clears throat> so, so Barnabas is giving, right? Gives all this land. But in Acts chapter 9, we, made a, we meet a really sweet lady. And she has the same spirit of generosity. Her name is Dorcas or Tabitha. The word Dorcas, I, I, I want to use that name because it means gazelle. Whether she was or not, 
when her parents saw her or named her, they saw her as a graceful lady. Her story's amazing. <clears throat> she lives at Joppa. She's called a certain disciple. And one commentary said it's the only reference in Acts at least where disciple is used to speak specifically of a lady, although we know there were lady disciples, but here she's called that. And she is full of good works and alms deeds. So she probably had some money and she was very generous with her money. But she also had good works. But good works for Dorcas didn't make her impervious to trouble in her life. The Bible said in Acts 9.37 that she got sick. And then she got worse. And then she died. And they washed her body and laid it in an upper chamber. And that day, if you were not embalmed, you would typically be buried within a day. But they know that the Apostle Peter is at Lydda, which is only about 14 miles away by modern maps. So they have somebody run to Lydda. They have the Apostle Peter come back to Joppa. And when Peter gets there, they take him into this chamber where Dorcas is lying dead. But when he gets there, he sees something that is incredibly moving. They see the good works of Dorcas's life. I think it went like this. Dorcas has widows in her church and in her community. If you read the story, it seems like she mostly was kind to ladies who had lost their husbands. And when she saw their hurting hearts, it touched her heart. So I, I don't know exactly what she did, but I just imagined Dorcas finding out, now what size do you wear? Let me see. And the Bible said that this woman, who may have been wealthy, she had some means, with her own hands. She made coats and garments for widows in her community or in her church that were there at Joppa. And when a widow put on a coat, wrapped that coat around her, I wonder if she felt the warmth of the love of Dorcas. And when she put on that garment that Dorcas made, I imagine she thought she was really something. That a wealthy lady in the church didn't just give her some money, but she made her with her own hands. She made her a garment to wear. And I cannot even begin to imagine how that made those widows feel. If you're older, you may remember Dorcas clubs, ladies' ministries, that ladies did things to help other people. It started with this idea of what Dorcas did, this precious lady who showed uncommon generosity to recipients that were primarily widows. She, she just gave her seamstress skills. Now, when I read, read this story, of all the stories in Acts, I've never really focused on Dorcas too much. But you know, in Acts, we're like casting out devils, working miracles, blinded eyes opening, shipwreck. I mean, Acts is a very dramatic book, right? But we have this story here on purpose. Because lest you get like overly spiritual and out in the wild blue yonder, 
Here is this lady, Dorcas, is giving money, but she's working with her hands. She's showing what I think is uncommon kindness to people. But here's Dorcas, she's dead. And the apostle Peter walks in. And these widows are standing around, I don't know how many. They're bawling their eyes out. And they've got in their hands the coats and the garments that Dorcas made for them. Now I don't believe Dorcas can buy a miracle. We don't believe you can buy a miracle. These ladies, probably most of them were older. Acts 9.39 On the screens. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. I got stuck on this story and um, I thought, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to... I'm just going to talk about Dorcas. Because Dorcas is just as apostolic as any other thing that happens in the book of Acts. But it doesn't really sound like you have to be very special to do what she did. I mean, you have to know how to sew. That wouldn't be me, right? You know? But there are other things that you know how to do that you can use the talents and gifts that you have to be kind to someone else in need. She was fulfilling the scripture and the practice of the Old Testament to take care of the fatherless and the widows, their affliction. I know that's written later in James, right? But she's being a real apostolic lady. And I believe she is filled with the Holy Ghost. Spiritual giftedness I mean, I know you know this, but but please, it's not always holding a microphone. It's not the people who are on the platform. It's not the people who just give, you know, public use, publicly using the gifts of the Spirit, which we are for and we honor and believe in. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, don't feel like that because you're not gifted in some way that seems really, you know, powerful or dramatic or public, that you're not important to the life of the church. Because Dorcas tells us that this is amazing. So the Apostle Peter tells everybody to leave. Too much crying. These widows, I think, are kind of breaking his heart and holding up all the garments. And he puts them out. He kneels down by her bed. He says, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes. She sits up. There is a tremendous miracle in the house. And the Bible said, and it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. That sounds spiritual. That sounds powerful. That sounds apostolic. But it started with what I might call apostolic generosity. If you don't mind, please stand. Many believed in the Lord. Do you think for one minute that when Dorcas was sitting in her little room with her loom or however she was making these garments. Do you think that she was sitting there saying, you know, one day I'm going to die and these widows are going to show the Apostle Peter and many are going to believe in the Lord. You know, I don't think she was envisioning 
the outcome. She was just practicing what Christians should do. And the Lord is in charge of the outcome. So just because you can't do something really big, don't do nothing. Just because you don't have gifts that can be used in public, please don't think that what God has given you is not important to do in private to individuals who one at a time accumulate to be a room full of ladies for Dorcas who testified to her kindness and generosity. Apostolic unity, apostolic hospitality, apostolic generosity. How, when, where, who are going to be the recipients of those kindnesses from us that will change the world and allow apostolic principles, power, and practice to be demonstrated to the church? Let's just be the hands and feet of Jesus, right, to go to the world.